0: Hello everybody, and welcome to What With A Smart Party Do? the UK's premier RPG podcast. I'm Gaz, and with me, back in black, hit the sack, been too long, but he's glad to be back, is my regular co-host, Baz. How's it going, Baz?
1: Hello! Hi, guys. Hi, everybody. Good to be back.
0: Yeah, it's been great having some stunt Baz's on, but equally great, if not more so, to have you back on the call as well. In celebration of this fact, it's not just me and thee got a couple of other special guests. We've got a good friend of the show, a returning guest, Mr. Jonathan Tweet. How's it going, Jonathan? Really great. Yeah, it's been a great year. Thanks. Cool. And also, we've got the legendary DM, Hollis Munro. How's it going, Hollis?
2: Oh, most excellent good.
0: Great to have you both here. I almost feel like the spring chicken on this podcast, if I could be so bold. <laughs> as I am, I think, Johnny. marginally younger than everybody else. So I feel like I'm the young kid who can ask all you old, wise and experts about the days of yore, about D&D and where it started and what it was like back in the day and how that compares to now. So perhaps a good starting point might be, well, we'll start with you, Hollis, as you're the most vulnerable, if, if you'll forgive me, <laughs> saying so. Quite all right. What are your sort of like earliest memories of D&D? Uh, I guess like today, it's, it's a whole new thing compared to how it was in perhaps the 70s. But when it was perhaps not as popular as it is today, and, and geek culture even's not as prevalent, what, what was it like to be a nerd back in those days?
2: Well, a friend of mine told me about this thing called Dungeons and Dragons. I'd never heard anything like it, and I asked him, I said, "So, what do you do? I mean, what he says? Oh, it's great! You you slay monsters and you travel through dungeons and you find treasure and you." And I said, "Well, it sounds like fun." I said, well, "When can we do it?" He says, "Let's do it this afternoon." I said, "All right." Where? And he said. My mom's apartment, right across the street. And I said, "Your mom's gonna be torqued, man. If we're gonna tear her place up." He's like, "No, no, no. It's all with paper and and pencils and dice." And I I went over to his house that afternoon. We had a marvelous time, and I was hooked. And after that, I began going to the college in Augustana where the college kids were playing. There was no one I knew in high school at that time who was playing. It was the older kids who were playing, and we're talking 1976. So that was my first introduction, and it was kind of a Wild and Wooly Wild West feel to it at the time because you had your basic box set which gave you the basic rules and that's all you needed from there you had to create your own it isn't like today where you can just buy all the different modules and maps and etc you had to create your own world I think that's something we've kind of lost really
0: mm, definitely and how about yourself Jonathan did, did, did you have a similar experience were you cleaning a uh, little dice with crayons to get the the numbers in and stuff like that. I
3: I did uh, I did ink my twenty uh, sided die and I uh, <laughs> rolled it to see which uh, numbers came up and then I inked those as the the tens so that <laughs> if it was weighted that it would uh, weight in my favor and that that d twenty I still have it and it rolls pretty well I gotta say <laughs> all the all the corners are rolled are worn off now so it rolls a long time but it gets a lot of twenties. Um, so I also uh, got into d sort of through Augustana College where my father was a professor and he knew the college students who were um, playing it and he knew I would like it and so he brought me over there and showed me uh, like a big room full of big kids playing this game with like a, there was a big pile of plastic monsters that the party had killed and there was maps of dungeons and it's like I'm I want this game I'm I'm in and so that's how I got in.
0: Cool. I think, I don't know about your experience, Basil, they do have like older veterans around because for me as well, even at school when I was, I think I was 10 at primary school in the last year when I first played X1 Isle of Dread and some kid gave it me, but it was like it was his older brothers that had given it to him. And later when I played RuneQuest, it was kind of based on Rick, my friend at the time, it's his older brother that handed down the big Rubble and Pervis and the battered boxes to him and stuff. There seemed to be a lot of older people doing it first and passed it down to you, almost like hand me down clothes with role playing games at that time.
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, um, I've told this story before, I'll do it, I'll do it briefly. Um, so I got into D&D in 1979 when I joined um, senior school, which is um, age 11, whatever that is in American terms. And um, as a child of the 70s growing up in the southeast of England, we were kind of obsessed with World War II. So we still are. <laughs> <laughs> and it was all about the Tommies versus the Jerrys. So my idea of Wargaming back then was running around in fields and using sticks as stem guns and lobbing bits of mud at each other as grenades. Uh, and, and all the comics of the, of the generation, that, that, was, that was their thing too. So when I joined senior school, you could have a chance to join um, after school clubs or at lunchtime, I think they were as well. And I signed up for Wargaming Club, assuming that would be exactly the same thing. And much like Hollis, when they said it was going to be in the history room, I thought, well, surely... Surely that's a bit small, but I'll give it a go because I'm new (laughs) to this school. And I thought all the tables would be up on their sides and people would be flinging books at each other and shouting, (laughs) you're dead. No, I'm not. (laughs) So imagine my horror when I walked into the room and it it kind of looked like there was some kind of a homework situation going on. Because (laughs) there was some very serious looking men who were in the upper years of the school. So like you say, guys, these guys would have been 16, which is when you're 11, might as well be your grandfather. And they had enormous hardback books, some yellow paper, some blue graph paper, and and one of them had a calculator. And I swear it was one of those scientific calculators <laughs> that you could use a cube root on. So, <laughs> so I very nearly got involved in the game just by wandering up and going, huh? And they said, no, sit down, it's fine. We're playing this game called T and T. And as luck would have it, and you can decide whether it's good luck or bad luck, they said, oh, actually, do you know what? The other players here, so we're full. That table over there is started up. So I went over to that table and they said, yeah, cool. We're, we're doing D&D. So I said, fine, what do I do? And he handed me the player's handbook, said, roll up a character and come back when you're done. So unlike many, many other people, I sat there with the hardback and read it from page one onwards and rolled my stats and kind of figured it out and, um, and then went back. And by a sheer miracle, and you'll remember this if you remember AD&D for back in the day, I'd managed to genuinely roll up a paladin so I needed wow. charisma 17 right that was the yeah. that was yeah. the gatekeeping on 3d6 or as I called them dice because I didn't <laughs> know there was <laughs> other and um, so I went back to the table and I said what have you got and I said I've got this thing I think it's called a paladin play- I didn't even know how to say that word and I just remember they all threw their dice at me and said we don't have paladins in our group and then we had to go back to lessons
0: so that was my first D&D game <laughs> I don't know why I'm still here. So, Holly, so you mentioned, uh, as as you did at the start there, that there weren't like a plethora of modules like they are today; you had to come up with your own stuff. So, like, how did you even go about that? I'm guessing from maybe reading fantasy and sci-fi novels or or, or other things. But like, if you've got nothing, if you've got no other scenarios to look at to go, what should this look like? How do you even begin to write something?
2: Well, first of all, I did have the original three books. To start with. And let's give you the basics. And from there, it was sort of, yeah, sort of mining and tapping all the things that I'd read for so many years that I thought would be really cool as an adventure to share with other people. But I didn't want to do something that someone else had done. So I simply used those as, as a jumping off point, as it were, and then expanded from there. And I learned early on that when you're starting out to level people, Because back then it was, you know, level by experience points, as it were. And my first map with graph paper, I had no idea what I was doing. And they called it Castle Corridor. Because I had (laughs) dropped so many (laughs) corridors. There were far more corridors than rooms. (laughs) It was six sheets of graph paper taped together. Well, then my next level, second level, was four. (laughs) <laughs> the next one after that was two and after that all of them were one
3: <laughs> they were
2: very compact, there were very little in the way of corridors at that point, but yeah finding finding ideas settings, creatures that I wanted to to emulate and explore in different ways was how I really started it off
0: mm. and, and Jonathan like you you've been writing for quite some time uh, I guess yeah. you're probably starting a similar sort of place you can tell us if not but like, how do you keep coming up with fresh things given the map, the plethora of content that is out there for D and D and other games at the minute? Like, there's only so many stories you can tell. Arguably, like, how do you manage to write something that and think, even for yourself, like this is interesting in you?
3: Well, you know, I was twelve, uh, and there were no video games or anything like that. So, if you wanted to fight monsters, you had to do it in your head, playing D and D, and the basic set that uh, we got, the Holmes basic set that I started with, had um, a monster and treasure assortment where you could just roll percentile dice and oh, it's 2d8 knolls and it's 600 copper pieces or whatever. And so I would draw these vast dungeons that were really just random monsters with random treasures and random places in there. I put in some interesting things like my first dungeon had the boss monster dragon at the very end or whatever. But honestly, mostly it was you kick open a door, there's some random monsters. Uh, you fight the random monsters, and we, we did that for maybe five hours on a Saturday and five hours on a Sunday for a long time, and there was there was no story. There was no, the, the town was like the thing where you buy the stuff you need with the gold that you got in the dungeon, but it didn't have a name. There was no, it wasn't anything. Eventually, we got a little bit like, hey, maybe there's a forest or whatever, but the early stuff was really thin, right? It was like, it's hard to imagine that being fun today, like mapping out sort of step-by-step. Okay, you open the door, you know, it's an empty room, but you don't know that yet because maybe there's a trap. And, uh, you know, it's a 40 by 40 room and your door is in the second square of the south wall. And there are two other doors, one in the third square of the north wall and one in the, Far square of the uh, west wall. What do you do? You know, and then, and someone's like drawing it, or and heaven forbid, the room is so big that you can't see it the whole way with your torches, and so now you can only see part of it. You have to like walk through the room piece by piece while people are drawing it. It's like, boy, today, I don't know if I put an empty room in a place because it's kind of boring. And if I do, it's like, okay. You go into this empty room, and there are these two doors. And what do you do? Like, I I don't make people play it out step by step. But we did, you know, listening at the door, climbing above the thief, climbs above the door so they can drop and do the backstab. I mean, it was take your 10-foot pole and tapping on the floor in front of you as you walk. It was just this really slow process. We, you know, maybe we got the fourth level or whatever, but that took a long time. So all this stuff that kids have today, like stories and missions and goals and, you know, wow, I, I'm envious. We didn't have any of that. Really? I have to admit that I
2: started out by creating a map of the first kingdom, creating a, a capital and then building. I wanted a world. I wanted something that I could populate and a certain type of individuals left here, other races here. And I wanted something that was, now when they go through the dungeon, I they developed what they called SOP standard operating procedure.
3: Yeah, You taught me that.
2: Yes so that you know what they're doing when they come yeah. out to the door. Because I was in particularly a sort of a bloodthirsty DM. I didn't set out to kill the party. I did set out to challenge them. And I love it when they beat me. When I came up with a scenario that I can't figure out and they beat me by working together, that's a rush, yeah. that is wonderful. But I'm the kind of guy who makes a
3: mimic a door. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, Hollis, <laughs> if, if you started right out creating a kingdom with a capital and whatever, that's why you became the legendary uh, dungeon master. Right? Like my, oh. my stuff was just here, here are these tables that you can roll randomly on. I'll do that for a couple of years. It was, yeah.
2: Well, I enjoyed creating scenarios and classes and expanding upon it because back then, like I said, it was kind of the Wild West. All you had were the basic books. There wasn't even Greyhawk yet. You had nothing but your own imagination and the basic rules to go from and to expand.
0: I'm curious about your talk of SRPs, though. Is that, is in a game, modern game like Burning Wheel for example you might have a, a, a keyword or a phrase, when something happens I do this you know what I mean, I draw yeah. a sword is that the sort of thing you're talking about, is that every room they get to, someone's going to listen at it, someone else is going to tap with a pole, and you just like exactly. we'll assume we do all this, and then That's
2: right. Right. move on, yeah, okay ended up bringing procedure
3: yep. yeah, Yeah, that made things go faster when he, yeah, when he taught us that, it's like oh, we don't have to talk it through every time we go to a door yeah, mm-hmm. so thanks Hollis <laughs> oh, you're welcome
1: we had similar, we had similar. And, and some of that was codified in the rules as well. There were, uh, from memory, there was a caller and there was a mapper. And those were distinct roles amongst your players, which you needed to have, because you had to follow like Jonathan's instructions about it's the third square up on the left. I would, and in the end, you just snatch the paper off them and draw it out for them and give it back to them. It goes, it looks like this, all right. Um, but also there was um, there was a, a culture then of, I think that first table I went to had nine or 10 players And maybe more actually at certain points. So, you needed those standard operating procedures because there was enough people to do everything. And you had like a rank and file situation, a marching order. There was all kinds of little shorthands, all the way down to uh, picking equipment was always a bit of a pain because you couldn't just buy a package. You had to go and buy your bag of ball bearings and your inch of chalk and your ball of string. And after a while, you started knowing what you always bought and you worked out how much it cost in total and just went, can I have the thief package, please? <laughs> exactly.
3: We never used the collar and um, and I, yeah, I don't I don't know that I ever saw anyone using the collar. So wow. that's, wow. yeah. How did I actually?
1: Well, I think when you have a, a dozen players, it was more a case of like, oh, I, I don't know necessity. what you three thieves at the end of the table are even saying. And actually, when you have three thieves, they would get together and have little thief chats, which was kind of nice, because they had to do something when the rest of the game was going on. And what they would do is they would almost send their orders down the table and it would be handed over the DM screen, because the DM screen was direct You had to have a DM screen, right? (laughs) What kind of amateur played without that? Um, (laughs) So, yeah, you never used one. <laughs> well, that's because you probably couldn't have gone and bought one. But by the time I got in the hobby, there was no shortage of content and ways for me to spend my money on stuff
2: I didn't need. <laughs> I, I actually, someone asked me one time. it says, "Well, what does a DM do?" I said, "Really? You just pretty much tell a story and you facilitate." I said, "I knew my world so well that I knew, I knew the charts, I knew the stats, and therefore I could just run it." I said. If you're going to be a good dm i said all right there's this city in a country in that country there's a um, nobles quarter in that nobles quarter there's a very high end inn. and on the third floor in the northeast corner of that floor there's a room with a big canopy bed fluffy royal blue cushions and underneath there is a box there's a box beneath that bed and within it is a key <laughs> The DM has to know
0: what that key opens. Yeah. That's, that's, that's interesting. Do, do, do you need to know what that key opens in advance? Because I guess one of the ways of uh, certainly more modern uh, ways of DMing is that you'll have elements, and then in between sessions you might work out what the key's for. Or there's that, there's that kind of thing, a bit like Wallace and Gromit, where he's laying the track out before the train as it's kind of like <laughs> careening around the place. That's kind of one way of doing it. And there's a bit of a meme oh, of about course. DMs like listening to what the players said the plot might be and then writing down their own. Oh, that's a better idea than I had, actually. I'm going to introduce that element now or change who the bad guy is, that gangster. Kind of
2: oh, yeah, it has to be flexible, almost like a living and breathing scenario that you, and you, as a DM, you have to be able to adapt. And you've got to be able to do it quickly. Mm-hmm. Because I'm there to make sure that everybody has fun. I've known DMs who are there to slaughter you. There are DMs who are yeah. there to run the game and they get upset. If the scenario does not happen in the particular way and order yeah. they want it to be. And I was like, then why roll dice? I mean, why is why even introduce an element of chance yeah. if we're here to sit and listen to you tell your story?
0: Yeah, just write a novel. <laughs> okay. Write, write your own book if that's what you want to do.
2: <laughs> exactly.
0: And the
1: notion of the, the killer DM polis, which you were not one of, but you, you knew about that early on. That seems like such a strange concept, but it was it was pretty it it was it was everywhere, wasn't it? I I knew killer yeah. GMs that you wouldn't play for. But what a strange thing to do in in a game of the imagination, yeah. if you could, if you want to drop a twentieth level demon into a first level dungeon as DM, you could drop six of them on people if you want. It's like Rocks fall; everybody dies.
2: I mean, yeah, how, exactly.
1: I, I don't know where that element of fun came from. I think there were some socially maladjusted people who were starting out in this hobby. Yeah, definitely, <laughs>
2: absolutely.
3: So Ken Saint Andre, he's the guy that wrote uh, Tunnels and Trolls. Yeah he would have a boss monster guarding the exit to the dungeon. So (laughs) when you left, like you're all battered, you're retreating, you've got to get back. You had to get past the monster. And one guy reported like he was the only survivor of the party. He had to get past this monster. There's no way he could take it. But if he made a really good dex check, uh, this was the, the saving throw system from tunnels and trolls was actually pretty good and mm. uh, i ended up kind of stealing it for Ars magica and in some ways it influenced third edition but um so the guy had to make this really uh, difficult dexterity save he made it he got past the monster oh the door of the dungeon's locked <laughs> so, oh like, my What word. gosh but, yeah <laughs> so killer killer game master i don't see the point <laughs> i really don't yeah So
0: we mentioned there briefly, we touched upon kind of like um, the D&D crowd has has quite often been a home for kind of socially awkward people maybe, or the geeks and the nerds or whatever and perhaps uh, what were your remembrances like of that sort of like late 70s, maybe into the 80s of like what was the culture like? Because I guess today everybody's seen a Marvel movie, right? But I guess 40 years ago it was a different story.
2: Well, 40 years ago it was, it wasn't really, it wasn't just the geeks and the outcasts, it was People who were really into fantasy. Okay, yeah. pretty much everybody at the table had read Lord of the Rings. That yeah. was pretty much a given. Yeah. Everybody there had some sort of a background and an interest in it. And we had intellectuals. We had two of my favorites, uh, <laughs> Stephen Earl. They uh, played at the college. They were not college students. They were <laughs> bodybuilders who were truck drivers. <laughs> really. And they were they were brothers. And one time we were on our way, and there's a group, we were on our way to, um, basically we've been hired to assassinate a renegade uh, druid by the name of Blackrock. And we were on, his, on our way to kill him. And all of a sudden we are surrounded on this plane by 12 heavily armored Lancers on horseback. We are at a very big disadvantage. I think our highest level was like six. And they surround us and they say, where are you going? And we're all like, "Man, I don't know what do we, what do we think we should say." Just, and Earl, the truck driver, says, "I'm going to cut your nuts off, so, Earl." <laughs> he says, "Now listen, I come to this game to kill things and get out of my aggressions. If it wasn't for this game, I've been running down Seventh Avenue, knocking people in the head with a club." Like, yeah, no problem, man.
3: <laughs> so yeah, we had all sorts of <laughs> we had all sorts of people <laughs> playing yeah. the game back then. Very different crew than as before. The red box came out and made it really easy for ten year olds to get into the game, and so it was. It was more like theater kids. Yeah, uh, it's it seemed like, and so I I remember a guy, um, a college student who played a twenty first level illusionist. We didn't even have rules for the illusionist, let alone a twenty first <laughs> level anything. Uh, And he wore a cape. And I remember looking at him and thinking, what a weirdo. And here (laughs) I was, you know, mapping out room by room these dungeons and rolling dice for stuff. But this guy was the weirdo. And, in fact, he was just ahead of the curve. He was cosplaying before it was cool. So, but it it really was a different world back then. The the second dungeon master I had was a woman. The first person to invite me to a and d game was a woman. You know, it was it was more, you know, you had to do more work to make it like Thomas was saying, like you had to really put your own imagination into it. And so uh, it it just, it, the door was not yet open for uh, hordes of munchkins. And in fact, you know, people who lived through that period talk about how the, the whole sort of tenor of the hobby changed when the Red Book came out. And there was also a, like a Newspaper article that had a kid who played D and D and his math scores went from C to A, and then that Christmas a ton of kids got the D and D red box for <laughs> for a present, and so that that changed everything. But before then, you know, it was it was more people like Hollis who were performers and imaginative creators and that sort of thing. It's it's interesting that you had a bit more
0: diversity in your experience because. I thought Baz can speak for himself, but like for me, it was just like white boys basically <laughs> all, all, all the way through. And I remember at university in the first year there, I started up restarted the RPG club. And um, we got a lady joined for the first session uh, or her first session, and we'd already played a couple of sessions. And then she joined, and I was just aghast at how the mood changed in the room. Like everybody uh, just, really? all the lads just got like really awkward. They didn't want to say anymore, <laughs> nobody was joking. <laughs> They're All thinking about what they should do, and they just like it was like it was that classic, you know, where nerds when they meet a woman for the first time, it was just yeah. looking like, around, going like, You guys are all at college, like, we could, like, I've seen you at the student union on a Friday night, like, you, you're not embarrassed to be around. What's the problem? And I don't know, there's some weird combination of being a druid and seeing a woman, suddenly, like, they just reverted to a 13 year old version of themselves or something. It was very strange to observe.
2: That's really strange. We, when we started out, there, there were our lady players. In fact, some of the most deadly players that I knew of were female.
1: I didn't see a woman at a gaming table until the nineties at all. They were oh. much much like guys. It was straight white dudes, uh kind of math geeks, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Less theatrical than, than you than you than you say. They were much more maybe it was that second wave post-red box yeah. where it was seen as quite an academic game. You had to right. read stuff. I mean, I, I do recall that one of the the massive changes in RPGs compared to the other games I'd ever played, there was lots of changes, but one of them was just the sheer size of the instruction booklet. Yeah, and I mean, that, yeah. and, to, and to this day, if you get out a, a copy of Monopoly, for example, yeah. every family in the world knows how to play Monopoly, but none of them have even read that tiny pamphlet that tells you how yeah. to do it. People won't do that. So it needed someone, you needed someone, probably the DM, who was at least prepared to put the effort in and outside yeah. of lord of the rings which was another big book that was kind of your gatekeeper wasn't it it's like if you can handle lord of the rings you could probably handle a dungeon master's guide because you had to yeah. be pretty academic um, and yeah. that's not to say that women weren't but you also had to be slightly obsessive i think and detail-oriented yeah. and and possibly on the autistic spectrum because it just <laughs> seemed to be the way that it was until the 90s and vampire got invented by your old friend Yep. And then, you know, girls were allowed to show up in their corsets, and that was a good day for everyone. <laughs> hey.
3: So the interesting thing about D&D back in the day is, you know, it came out of the wargaming mm. uh, hobby, which was all men, right? And and yeah. on the autistic spectrum, I think, by and large. And, and so when Dungeons & Dragons came out, it was remarkable how many women were playing the game. Like, the people remarked mm. about that. And then... I, I think that didn't carry over when the red box came in and there was a flood of sort of the munchkins, they called it the munchkin invasion. So then like you said, it sort of had a resurgence in, with uh vampire especially, but mm. but yeah, it was a different time. The seventies were a really different time for uh, Dungeons and Dragons.
2: Mm. I but, remember when it was uh, blacklisted by, uh, <laughs> by certain uh, political parties and by certain yeah. uh, elements of society. And we would get, um, TV miniseries in books about how it was a gateway to everything from mass murder to summoning demons.
0: I was just going to ask about Satanic Panic because we didn't really get it over here in the UK, but I think in the US it was a major thing, right? Yeah. You had Monsters and Mazes movie with Tom Hanks and all kinds of stuff. Yeah.
2: Yeah, we excel at that sort of thing.
3: Yeah, So, <laughs> yeah, all the religious freaks from the UK came over to America so they could be freaks in peace, and now That's we're fun. stuck with them. So thanks. You're welcome.
0: <laughs> so uh, did was there a way of – was there anything that happened, do you think, culture, that, that took you out of that time? Because there was a, a, a point where Dungeons & Dragons just seemed to be like dead as disco almost, like there's a backlash against that music drummer at one point and then he died. But can you think of if that perhaps turned the corner or did just like everybody get over it and get back to playing Dungeons and Dragons again?
2: As far as I could tell, no one stopped. As far as I could tell, as a matter of fact, it was like spreading sugar to keep away the ads. People <laughs> wanted to know what was going on. They just, it attracted the wrong elephant element, perhaps, but uh-huh. more people were actually interested in it. And of course, when those found out that we weren't summoning demons, just sort of fell by the wayside, the rest of us kept going.
3: You know, I think uh, Magic the Gathering made a huge difference. Oh uh, yes. I, so I remember, I, I got into publishing in uh, uh, 87 and then Magic came out in, was it 96 maybe? So 95, oh no, earlier than that. Before, when after I got in and before Magic came out, there was lots of talk about the game industry dying, and what are what what are we going to do for jobs when it goes away? And and Magic came out, and suddenly game stores could make a lot of money, right? Like someone would come mm-hmm. in and plop down a thousand dollars to pre-order a bunch of uh, Magic displays or whatever. And and so the the game stores were really hurting until then, and then Dungeons and Dragons was really hurting because the company was now owned by the Buck Rogers heiress, who apparently had been raised to milk properties for money. And so she didn't like Dungeons and Dragons and didn't really like role-playing games that much, but she wanted to milk it for money. Mm-hmm. Um, and they they had a terrible business strategy that split the market among Dark Sun players, Planescape players, Red Death players. You know, I mean, it just went on and on. And so you, you couldn't sell any product to anything more than 10 percent of your audience and so there there was other shenanigans going on or whatever but there was a point where tsr could not borrow money to print books and if they couldn't print books they couldn't make money to pay back their loans and they were just stuck they didn't they uh, uh and wizard of the coast came and bought them and and there was a big resurgence with third edition um so it, it it, it it was rocky times, it seems, for a while. Tim uh, Eastland,
2: uh, who worked for, uh, wrote for them, as a matter of fact, he was part of my original group there at Augustana.
3: Yeah, I remember him.
2: Yep. And yeah, there, was, there were some dire times.
1: Yeah. It seems almost inevitable that dire times would come because the notion of that first Holmes box that you guys had or the white box before that. Which I had. And then Hollis' living proof that you didn't need to spend a dime that's right get, get many many hours of hobby out of this that's thing right. it had a built-in not obsolescence but it had a built-in system so that you couldn't make any profit out of it yeah that's so right if you were playing it right was that.
3: that's right
2: and so they had to find a way to monetize it and they mm-hmm. certainly did eventually
0: yeah yeah so um i guess th- all of us have seen multiple iterations of Dungeons and Dragons as well as other games as well. Like, Has any of your styles changed based on the addition of Dungeons and Dragons? I mean, obviously, Jonathan, you've, you've written <laughs> some of those things, so you're to blame for a lot of it. But I guess for you, Holly, you've seen various iterations. Have any of those actually impacted you, or are you still just like making your own scenarios and doing your own thing anyway, and the, and the rules really just there to facilitate it?
2: I'm still actually doing my own thing, drawing my own scenarios. My own maps my own dungeons uh creating new countries while well, creating worlds as you know i've <laughs> I told you how expansive my uh and D game has become and uh yes i'm still doing it myself and i've created i've got like 17 different classes of magic users i've got all, all sorts of different magic systems i've got all sorts of things that it just sort of has grown well you know it's been over 40 years so yeah <laughs> everything has grown and expanded and a lot of things, people come to me with things as well. Like for example, um, in my D&D campaign, uh, people get skill set, but you also get to become a specialist in something and you can get to become a master in it and then an expert in it. And I let people for like, well, I've got charts for weapons masteries, but for non-weapons, I let you pick your own. Now you can pick something that there's already a chart for, or I've had people come up with things such as unobtrusiveness as a, uh, as, a, yeah. as a non-combat skill and it saved his butt once so if it went past him in the dungeon he rolled a 20 and he sat there and went <laughs> and this <laughs> horrific demon goes striking past him I've had things such as um, uh, clothing for offensive and uh, defensive occasions I let, this, I let this is about taking your imagination for a walk for, to take it out and see what you can do with it that's what the game is about to me and I love to encourage that in other people and I love to see what they can do with it.
3: So, Hollis and I talked earlier, and one of the interesting things he had to say is about how the treatment of evil has changed in the game. I think partly that started with third edition, and is also true in fifth. So, Hollis, you want to you want to riff on that? Because player characters used to be—you had to have evil characters and good characters in the same party. Yeah. Oh, yes. You know,
2: and it, it created for interesting interactions. Now, of course, at some point or another, someone's going to suggest we, they run an all evil party. And I usually chuckle and say, all right, go ahead. And I will let them do so. And that usually will last about one campaign at the most. One time I let them all rope yeah. evil characters. By the end of the night, two of them had sold three others into slavery. And it was, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it just <laughs> it falls apart under its own weight. Yeah. But having evil characters, because the way I look at it is that people are capable, of course, of evil. That's simply, it's not just a fantasy scenario, it is. And now the argument that they're having right now about, for example, that, that you could have no intelligent evil class, like for example, orcs, for example. Well, DD, when it started out the earlier day, you can't really tell it because all the drawings were in black and white. But the orcs were described as pink people they were pink <laughs> so <Yeah. laughs> and i think that the perceived racism now there have been some examples of course where people have done so and there have been some examples where they unintentionally did so too i mean not just d and uh, for example um, oh jar jar binks for heaven's sakes um <laughs> that 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 horrible um Oh, what was the second uh, Transformers movie? Oh, what a Farago. And I think back to—are uh, you familiar with the names Jay Ward and Bill Scott? Um, it's Rocky and Bullwinkle. Do you, right. do you know Rocky and Bullwinkle?
1: Yeah, yeah. A little.
2: There was a role-playing game of it. I know. Yep. That. Yep. Yes. At one point, they kept getting called into there was the uh, CBS uh, head offices, and they were called on the carpet and being censored for things they were doing in the cartoons. At one point, they had called in by the suits because they had depicted Rocky and Bullwinkle having been captured by natives, and they were in this large black pot. And they called them in and said, that is simply unacceptable. They said, why? They said, you can't depict cannibalism in a children's cartoon. And they looked at each other and said, eating a moose and squirrel is what? (laughs) 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 ha! (laughs) <laughs> and so it's actually the mind, sometimes it's, it's the perception in the mind of a participant, there is no, no intent. Intent follows the bullet. There was no intent, but some people look for us that sort of thing, and then it colours everything. What was the use of alignment
1: like back in the day for you and your games then? Was that something that actually mattered in any mechanical oh, yes. way or the way that people acted? Because that's one of the things that I guess a lot of modern gamers would shy away from the the very notion of alignment, but it was there from the off,
2: wasn't it? Yes, it was. And yes, I still use it in my world. And if you get three drifts, then there's a penalty. In other words, three drifts, if you do three things that are absolutely against your alignment, Mm -hmm. then you lose a level and have to switch alignments. Because you have decided that you are on a different path now. And that you are not... Not the character that you had set out to be or that you thought you were or that you had presented to the world. You were something different. Now, of course, there are some characters that are just absolutely locked into alignment. For like, for example, Paladins. Mm-hmm. You know? Tell me about it. <laughs> Boy, that's still smart, doesn't it? <laughs> it really does. It really does. <laughs> you,
1: no, you've got me started now. Right, so the reason I it's still smarts is that that was one of the very first things that I took from any role playing game? Was that that when I read that, players out, he said, You've, You have to be lawful good. Yeah. And I didn't know what lawful good meant. Yeah. I don't think anyone knows what that means now. Yeah. But I got the idea of it. It's like, wow, I can only be that. That's immediately a choices are taken away from me. That was, yeah. an, you know, within 10 minutes of getting into the hobby, I thought this was all about freedom. This is all about choice. You're yeah. being whatever you want to be. Apparently not. Yeah. <laughs> and no one so even cool. appreciated you being lawful good anyway. Never mind having evil players, everyone played chaotic neutral
2: or chaotic
3: stupid (laughs) back then. Yeah, that's right.
2: There have been times when I remember times when there were lawful good characters Mm. who committed acts that they could justify in their mind as lawful good. And because of that justification, I did not penalize them because to their mind and to their viewpoint, they were still behaving as a lawful good.
3: That's where it gets tricky. Yeah. Yeah. Hitler thought he was doing good for the world. <laughs>
2: <laughs> they had one character who had become very powerful. He was a barbarian and um, a ranger, but not a true ranger. And he had began acting not quite evil, but he was doing things that they did not approve of and some things that society would not have approved of. And so they decided that there had to be a change. They actually set him up. They borrowed armor and items from another uh, government guild and took their strongest fighter, dressed him up in them with a full helm so Lone Wolf would not be able to tell who it was. This individual challenged him in the middle of the street and in the public Mm -hmm. to a duel. Well, Lone Wolf was insulted, accepted and defeated. Now he's lying there dead the chief cleric from the party shows up with another magic user and the cleric says, speak with dead. Back then you had three questions, yes or no answers. Question one, do you wanna be raised? He says, yeah. Do you wanna be raised lawful good? No, you wanna be raised lawful good knowing that the alternative is last rights.
3: <laughs> and last rights means your soul goes to its destination. You can never be raised again.
2: Your soul is gone to its destination, the character is gone. They felt that they were justified because Lone Wolf had gone so far outside the lines, as far as they were concerned, in doing this. Is that lawful good?
3: Yeah, forced conversion, right?
2: Yeah, conversion at swords points, what we used to call it.
3: And you accepted, right? You were raised as a race as a lawful good character. Yeah. Yeah.
2: So that sort of interesting uh, bigotry you can get yeah. when you use alignments and you have them in the game. Mm. Mm. And I bring up there have been times when we brought up moral and spiritual questions within the game. And it's fun to explore them in a fantasy setting without repercussions or judgment.
0: Hmm. I think it's fine as long as players lean into their alignment or try and do something interesting with them or abide by a set of principles. I think that's there's, there's a little undercurrent there of the things you've discussed where I think Basil agreed with me on like some people we've played with trying uh, overly justify why something's lovely. good, or the game suddenly becomes about them trying to weasel ways of getting things or, you know, and it's just you, you kind of lose the fun element there It's like it becomes more like a, a session in a law room or something with people on both sides trying to justify or not justify a certain action and that can take away from the uh, the fun of the game. So you've got to kind of got to lean into it, haven't you? And say, so if, we, if we're doing alignments, then we're going to go hard for a particular alignment. so you're going to set by a set of principles. And then any judgments you make or things in the game, like you can convert people at some point, and that's fine, can then become, that's that's canon in our game now. So there may well be a faction of Paladins that go around forcibly converting people in your game world. That's like a new thing that because of what the players did, you can kind of on incorporate that as like, OK, well, that's what you did to play this. So now in our game well, that's a thing. Uh, and I'm going to use it from, from my side of the table as well. Exactly. I remember using alignment and thinking
1: it was really handy in certain situations. Because mm-hmm. maybe I wasn't a very good role player. I don't know. But you know, one of, the, one of the other amazing things about role playing games was that you were being someone else, unlike your games of Monopoly or Ludo or, or, or any game or card games. So you were trying to be someone else. And I didn't really know how to do that because outside of being a kid and playing cops and robbers and that kind of stuff there weren't any games that said you have to pretend to be someone else so i know it's become a bit of a dirty word now to do but that's what my character would do yeah but when we were put in interesting situations by our dms and sometimes it was simply a matter of just having a thief and a paladin in the same party yeah and it would be like okay exactly. well there's going to be some pockets getting picked that kind of thing or if you ever captured a hobgoblin and you yeah. had a hostage Well, you know, we're going to put them to the sword. And we would look down on our character sheet and because the DM would go check your alignments if we started just freeforming it and doing what we would do as real people. Right. And it's like, oh, yeah, yeah, of course. Actually, yeah. Do you know what? I am chaotic good. I'm basically Robin Hood in this situation, aren't I? So that means, yeah, that I need to color my decisions based on what's in my character. So that what would my character do started off with really good intent. I mean, it's also justified some horrendous actions. Yeah. but actually yes. the, the idea of getting you to don't
2: do what you would do do what your character would do that's role-playing games exactly and it's uh, speaking as an actor as well it's it's a marvelous acting exercise it's a marvelous exercise in character development and portrayal mm. Jane, dame judy Dentz thought so yeah <laughs> believe it or not <laughs> she watched vin diesel running his game in his trailer and she thought it was a marvelous acting exercise
3: wow all right. Acting, maybe. But boy, when I was, I don't know, 13, us lawful evil characters all turned on the lawful good character. Like we convinced him, hey, there's there's this guy in the dungeon that's going to sell this cool magic item for this money. So we got him to bring all his money into the dungeon with him. He was fourth level so I could cast sleep on him and there's no saving throw. And then once he's asleep, like we tied him up and cut his arms off and killed him and took his stuff. And the player ran home crying, right? And his mom called me yes. like, what happened? I'm like, well, you know, we were lawfully evil. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't, one, we were lawfully evil, and two, there was a preacher's kid who was older in the party, and he sort of instigated us all into this act <laughs> of, you know, you know, brutal mayhem against kind of the weird kid in the party. So was that role-playing, or was that just childish cruelty being given sort of a, a hey, you're lawfully evil, you can, be, you can shit on your friend. Well, more of that
2: sort of thing came into it when you brought in uh, more immature players. I mean, when you think about it, when it first started out, like I said, I didn't know anybody in junior high or yeah. grade school That's right. who was playing the game. Yeah, It was high school and up. Yeah, But when you bring in younger players, they have less developed sense of, of self, less developed sense of place. And you tell them that, well, you can do whatever you want. Well, then,
3: well, I mean, I was in a college student game once, and one of the characters was, I don't know if they were knocked unconscious or like dead, but could be resurrected. And players were afraid that two of the other characters who are chaotic evil were going to take the body back to the temple of chaotic evil and drink the blood for experience points. And so that was college students, right? Like perfectly reasonable fear. It's it, perfectly reasonable. I mean, w- when we bought Dungeons and Dragons at Wizards, there was a, a second edition uh, lunchtime dungeon game. And the guy with the highest level character was evil and was would like sell normal weapons to the other characters and tell them they were magic. And it's like, oh, so you you wrote evil on your character sheet and now you can dig your friends around and it's okay. Like it, it seemed, I don't know, was that acting or was that, being a jerk i don't yeah. know i said being in a jerk
2: <laughs> but it also is acting <laughs> i mean and i get my, that's right in my world i never had that kind of a problem like i said even when i let them take it the entire evil party they just went okay this isn't cohesive this isn't going to work we're not going to be able to accomplish anything yeah or do anything with this, or this sort of a scenario and so it always sort of self-corrects itself if you let it as the DM is not your position to tell them what to do. Yeah. You give them scenario, you allow them to interact in it. And I found that nine out of 10 times, most parties will choose to do the correct thing for the cohesiveness of the party and to, to, to go through the mission and accomplish something, if nothing else, just for their own accomplishment and well-being.
3: So we were mostly, when we started, we were mostly lawful evil. We were evil, so we could kill anything we met and get the experience points. And we did end up like attacking towns and rolling catapults in and destroying, you know, peaceful settlements and whatever. But we were lawful, so we could get along and not fight among each other. And that seemed like that's obviously the best alignment to be: get to kill everything and still get along as a group.
2: Well, when I created my world, I created a government and a country and everything else. And guess what? There are rules within a kingdom yeah and there are people that enforce those rules <laughs> and because they have to remember that as well as i want to be lawful evil i want to name my horse rampant so i can ride rapid across the countryside and over peasants well that's well and good yeah but when you are caught and hunted down grow up a new character because everything you have accomplished to this point means nothing now
1: rolling up a new character was a big deal it was an easy thing to do oh, yes jonathan talked before about uh, sending a kid home crying because their character was killed there's um that happens less these days you know death is is just a story beat in some ways but back then, if you if you lost your character and you'd put many 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 hours yeah into it, it was absolutely an emotional wrench yeah. So it, oh, it was devastating. It may have been just a collection of like notes and paper, but it wasn't. It was a collection of memories and the stories yeah. that you built up. The rest of it, and you'd worked really hard. Level yeah. drain was awful, but death yeah. was that oh. was the end. That yeah. was the end of you. You couldn't yeah. go back and yeah. game again that night.
3: Yeah, you you were destroyed by it. Yeah, yes, and you had to create a new character at first level. Yeah.
1: Yes. Yeah. yeah. Multiple levels within a party was common, yep. common for us. Yeah. And the first level character, if they could hang on, they would level up fairly quickly because of the, the oh, challenges yeah. that they were facing. But yeah, my goodness me, yeah, it was tough. <laughs> it was.
3: <laughs> yeah, life was cheap.
0: We're getting close to <laughs> telling people to get off our lawn, I think, at the minute. We're getting <laughs> You kids don't know you're born. <laughs> with with your death saves
1: (laughs) but when i say tough what i really mean is it was amazing because we're still here and we're still doing it and i don't really know how because objectively when you look back at some of that stuff it was clumsy it was naive it was stupid it was foolish you know like um did you guys ever see that the tv remake of westworld It, it, it was all right but one of the things i quite enjoyed about that remake was that they'd they'd gone to that uh that notion of like you can do anything you can play a character you can do anything in this world and immediately, it all became about murder and killing. That's yeah. that's all people wanted to do. People didn't set up churches. People didn't set up communities. They just went yeah. absolutely hog wild. And I know it's not exactly a documentary, but it's very similar <laughs> to those early experiences of DMVs. Right. But, yeah. but really, I yeah. can do anything.
2: Yeah. And people started breaking laws. Exactly. And the first thing they do is they start to indulge their darker nature, yeah. to indulge their they fantasies, is indulge, to do the sort of thing that you... You wish you could do if you could just get away with it without yeah. any repercussions.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. But the repercussions are there. The DM brings in the, the,
2: the police
1: and another yeah, exactly. hobo
2: lifestyle to will only get you so far. Exactly. There are repercussions. And you have to understand that there are rules and repercussions. And sometimes even doing the right thing has repercussions that are unpleasant.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And that's another one of those strands that I just love about role-playing games that other games don't have, repercussions. What you do has consequences. It has it immediately, you say stuff, the DM says something back to you, and then it has the consequences next week or next year or in the next scenario. That's amazing. The fact that you can just keep coming back to the game and it's perpetual, that didn't happen in any board games I knew of.
0: No. So do do you think there was um, a transformation at any point from these kind of like early formative years where there's a lot of murder-hobbing and that kind of stuff, to uh, wanting a deeper richer story or for people wanting to play a different style of character is there, is there kind of like a break point where perhaps it stopped, I think a lot of the stories you guys have mentioned have been things like we did this because it got XP and that kind of thing and it seems to be a lot of in-game mechanic stuff as reason for doing that um, do you think there's anywhere where there's a kind of a drift away from that it became more about the fantastic stories that you're making and stuff rather than mechanical things that are happening in the game
2: Yes actually yes I do And I can't give you like a timeline as to when it occurred. But actually part of it was something that I've railed against, which is (laughs) the lack of people creating their own worlds, their own maps, their own scenarios. When you started to give them a set framework to work within, then they could actually build something that lasted within that framework, something that you could add on to. We just bought them in uh yeah. my monday night game they were going and we're actually running it and we're the druid is actually awakening bushes and things around it for protection and <laughs> everybody is all pitching in together and you're creating something larger that you did not have before and that you want to keep perpetuating yeah and i don't know when it started but i'm pretty sure it was when you started getting um maps and things like that that you could buy already created that you could work within that framework and that's just a guess
3: on my part. So, so for me personally, Call of Cthulhu was a watershed moment because um, if, if you play you're Call of Cthulhu, if you're, you're you're in the twenty. Well, <laughs> I mean, it, it takes your takes your mind off of trying to get to eighteenth level for one thing, because <laughs> you're, you're not going to make it. Um, but you you are in a real world, like you are in a world that is so vast, right? Like it li- literally has a history at capital politics foreign countries languages everything that makes a w- real world cool you have that because it's the real world and and so that that changes everything so i so my game Ars Magica was set in the real world over the edge is set in kind of the real world right because that it, it does make things better um, and the other thing about call of cthulhu is that it's you know you're it's not about gaining experience points or gaining treasure, so it has to be about working together to solve a problem. There's, there's no point in being an evil character. You'll go insane, and then you won't play your character anymore. And so at your your character has a family. You're a, you're a regular person. That changes everything. Like when we rolled up characters for years and never had brothers or sisters or kinfolk or anything, because it wasn't in the rules, so we didn't have it. Uh, so, Call of Cthulhu really changed. It. <laughs> well, <laughs> you were older than me and and more of a yeah. legendary DM than me, and you did it right. But we, it, for me, Call of Cthulhu was the thing that uh, I mean, to some degree, to some extent, RuneQuest had a cool map, cool history, uh, that sort of thing, and that got it started. But Call of Cthulhu really, um, really brought it home and changed the way I play forever. I think.
2: I had one character who um, actually got to the point that he retired his primary character. And he started running his little sister because she was more fun.
3: <laughs> <laughs> we did have two characters get married, but that was only so that when one of them died, the other would inherit all their stuff.
1: <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah, there was, a, there was a
1: piece on the AD&D character sheet. Yeah, there, there was a will section on the, oh, on the, on the, on the original yeah. character Oh, sections. yes. <laughs> I bequeath all my gold, to. Yeah, my next character. Yeah, because there sure wasn't any love lost. When you, when your character did die, it wasn't like there was a moment of silence. Well, if there was, it was just before everyone pitched into the body and started picking it off like a sale day.
3: <laughs> That's right.
2: <laughs> yeah, we had that happen too.
3: <laughs>
2: As a matter of fact, we uh, had some pair of characters who were obviously not of good bent who would strip the corpse of a fallen member. Yeah.
1: Yeah, absolutely, every time. <laughs> it was easier than getting it off the monsters,
0: wasn't it?
3: <laughs> yeah, that,
0: that's right. So have you have you got any stories of, of good characters then, or players that had uh, perhaps a higher purpose, or their characters had a higher purpose, or something they were striving for? As uh, I don't know, I, I think you can think of perhaps clerics and paladins might have that religious bent. They might have some higher calling. But do you not get groups of players who want to um, have a purpose in their lives beyond you know killing the mates and sticking?
2: Taking all the stuff and that kind of. (laughs) Actually, I can think of several, and some of them had led to uh, some interesting. For example, there was a time in my world the party members. They saved the world, but screwed up massively at the same time, (laughs) and had. (laughs) And they'd shattered the planes, so the planes were no longer adjacent. Sounds bad. (laughs) Now, yes, yeah. Now, this also created a worldwide earthquake. In the capital city of Fortnum Greenbook, they found out that the old city had been built just right on top of the, the original city. And that was now the Underdark, which is not the same Underdark. This was inhabited mainly by undead. Now, when they tore open the earth at night, the undead began to find their way to the surface. To make things worse, the clerics were now separated from their gods which means that they weren't getting their power from their gods anymore. And they found out the hard way that every time you cast like a fourth level spell, those four hit points are gone permanently. In fact, there's a couple of clerics who were lying in state. There have been, I think they've actually been canonized at this point because they cast themselves in healing to unconsciousness, to coma and eventually perished. Wow. Now, when this happened, up to this point, the church and the crown had been walking pretty much hand in hand. And there was a lot of discussion about that amongst the druids and woodwitches, and as you can imagine. And they'd been actually hunted by the office of the witchfinder general from the Church of Iluvatar, long story. <laughs> but when, when this all went down, all of a sudden the Druids and Woodwitches started coming out of the forests and glens and helping people. And people would say, Well, thank you so much. How much how much did that cost? And like, Oh, no, we do this for the for the pleasure of the Green Mother. She is All life to her is, well, they started converting people. The <laughs> church was livid. Didn't know what they could do about it. They went to the crown. They wanted them to ban the wood witches and jewels. The crown's like, are you crazy? If we do this, there's going to be an uprising. They finally worked out a truce. But then again, people have also built cities and started their own fiefdoms and actually helped people and cared for their peasantry and for their people and they have some of the characters are now retired and they're grandchildren. They're running those characters now because then they continue to build. So yeah, there are times when you have grand arcs yeah. and there are times when it's just very, very small interpersonal stories as well. And they're all fun and they're all fascinating. I absolutely love them.
3: It, it took me 20 years before I started doing stuff on that scale. 20 years of Dungeon Mastering. So... I'm there, now, I'm there now, but boy,
0: I was not there at first. I guess one of the things that requires, which is probably something we haven't talked about yet, is, is, is back in the way, it sounds like all this is still doing, it. he's running long campaigns. Because uh, for certainly setting up some migrants in the minute, a campaign is like six sessions. And then we switch to a different system and we play a different game on the but... <laughs> Yeah, oh boy, he did that a lot. So so to run these big, uh, you know, have whole worlds full of multiple cities and politics and all kinds of stuff, you probably need time, right? That's how it yeah. gets good, because oh, yeah. you have lots of sessions. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure that happens as much anymore maybe or maybe it's because I'm old now and I don't have the time to, to do it but.
2: No I think you're right actually we just finished running a campaign where we managed to get up to, it took about half a year before we got up to like 18th level and we finished the campaign, we you know, finished that book, we finished that campaign yeah. and so we're starting new characters and other campaigns that's that never happened <laughs> back then, there was there was that, that wasn't the structure as it were, but now, yeah, you, within you know two years easily, you could go through three or four different campaigns, and mm-hmm. not have that continuity and growth of character and unity of a party. That's what's really amazing to see how these people have actually come together, and you know what to expect from each other, and you know what to you know what to rely on someone else for, and who's best at this. And the party amalgamation, the party, the I, what am I trying to say, Jonathan? Your <laughs> your degrees in English. <laughs> I only had a minor. <laughs> uh, 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 uh. Party dynamic,
3: yeah, yeah. I mean, it takes time, right? Like, there's, yeah. not, there's no no substitute for that. And
0: what do you think, Baz? I'll bring you in as our new D and D expert at this point. <laughs> you're your <a> weapon snapper. <laughs> but I, I don't, the impression I get, I'm not as plugged in as you are, perhaps to the the, the new D and D product and stuff. But there seems to be more excitement about a new book coming out, or it's almost like people are waiting for the, the latest release so they can then start a campaign about it and less of the sort of thing that Hollis and, and Jonathan have about to some extent in terms of why not just build your own campaign and include whatever you want and, you know, and, and evolve it from there. There seems to be, I don't know whether people, younger people might just suddenly have come into the hobby and, and just expected that now, that you, you get stuff given to you, so you wait for it before you do more stuff, rather than mm. knowing that they should homebrew it, perhaps, or they can homebrew it.
1: Yeah, well, yeah I know. The, 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 the fashions come and go, don't they? I think for a long time, the idea of selling adventures was seen by most publishers as a good way to lose money. There's, <laughs> you know, apart from Call of Cthulhu, AD&D, that most game lines don't have a big old sequence of adventures that make any cash for them. Right. It was always systems. Yeah. And and that's that went away for a long time and people did their own stuff. I mean, of recent, in, in the last 18 months, two years, I've seen some stuff on the internet where people are looking down on homebrew stuff as if it's nowhere going to be as good. It's like, you know, I'll yeah. come and play in your game, but I don't want to do any homebrew stuff. I'm not interested in that. It's got to be, you know, I want to play Rhyme of the Frostmaiden or I want to have this. And I kind of, and that I think that just comes from a, a huge influx of players over recent years. Yeah. And, the, and the avenues that they have into gaming now are not the avenues that we had. So yeah. when Hollis and Jonathan and, and to an extent me, when we were starting, there was only one way to play, which was to roll your own, because that was your only option. That isn't the only option now. And if you come to it from someone else's stream or you come to it from watching Stranger Things or you come to it from picking a hardback adventure from your bookstore, then it looks like you've kind of got to do it like a PlayStation. You need yeah. you, you need your big box, but you need, your, you need your thing to download or to plug into it to get a game going. You know, who would buy a PlayStation where you had to like write the game? <laughs> you had to write your own code. <laughs> yeah, that would be madness, wouldn't it? So I think there is that. But I think that's just a matter of education as well, because I don't think it takes very long. I really don't think it takes very long before, um, I mean, I run a lot of published stuff, almost exclusively, but I only run it published stuff for the first 10 minutes, because after that, it becomes unpublished stuff very, very quickly indeed. And your second, your third, your fourth sessions are nothing to do with that initial starting point that you got. And I think uh, even your modern D&D player right now, I don't think it takes very long at all you were talking about like what kind of characters people do i think you you do that you do the, the same old things we've talked about today you you slaughter an innocent you <laughs> burn down something you get all of that out of your system as a new player you still do that now i see new players doing it all the time it doesn't take very long at all before people start buying pubs and forming
2: relationships and saying exactly. "Where where there's is the rest there's, of there's my tribe <laughs> yeah it doesn't take yep. long there's only so many, you know, widows that you can orphan or whatever. before It's, it's just the yeah. same thing over and over exactly. again. Exactly. And with the new books coming out, I have to admit that I, I speak to people about this, and half of them are excited and anticipatory, and half are cringing before the blow. Yes. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is like, oh, dear God, they're bringing back Faco. Or...
3: Yeah. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so there's... Every time you think about it, and there's of course the mindset as well that it's a money grab, that they're bringing out a new system or something else because now you have to buy the books, you have to buy the new modules. Yeah. I myself, I don't feel threatened by the new stuff. I, as a matter of fact, I'm one of those people who will buy it and look at it and say, "This is a really cool idea. I'm incorporating that." Yeah. Hmm. Granted, I'm not going to use a whole system because I already have a system that's worked well for. Oh dear Lord, I'm 63. This is... <laughs> yeah, about 30, over 45 years, and so I'm not going to switch to anything else. But if I find something else, then you know, John Williams, the composer,
1: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: he has a room full of little gold statuettes because he only steals from the very best.
3: <laughs> 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 and
2: I follow that model and take it to heart.
3: Yeah.
0: Cool. Yeah, I, I think that's what we advocate on the podcast quite a bit. Actually, is just buy things and then take what you want. You know, just. So t- use the pirate card, you know. Take what you can and give nothing back. That's the kind of the way to do it. I-, I guess the other thing I am finding curious about newer players now it was something when I- we talked to one of the the more recent D D designers, and the thing that they came up with that they they contributed to uh, a setting was they they got this naked statue with a cowboy hat on or something, and I was like, okay, fine. I don't really know what that's got to do with D&D or why you're so pleased about it. And um, on a stream, of a, a popular streamer, or until recently popular streamer, she was asked, like, what's what's your favourite ever magic item? And she was kind of, oh, I have this I have this character who would just pull an apple out of the pocket wherever they wanted. <laughs> I was like, really? That's the best magic item you can think of? I mean, it's, it's, it's fine. I'm not saying it's a bad thing to do, but, like, really? And it's that kind of break, I think, between coming up with your own worlds and the sort of fantastical stuff that we've been talking about and perhaps new people are... I don't know, it just seems a little bit mundane these days. Like, those sort of things. Even if people supposedly at the top of the hobby or they're not coming up with cool stuff, as I would call it. And maybe it's because I'm of a certain age where I think dragons are cool, or things like that, you know, <laughs> rather than an apple. I don't know. Maybe it's just me. What do you guys think? That's interesting.
2: <laughs> I think you're just jaded. Yeah, possibly. <laughs> jaded, yeah. I actually created a dungeon with all original magic items, artifacts within it. It was... Jonathan's heard me speak of it before. We talked about it, as a matter of fact. it called Castle Orloth. Yeah. And it was the most unique dungeon that you could ever visit. The way they found out about it, Russ, just wrap this up really quick. There was another adventuring guild that had disappeared, hadn't been seen in the town in the inns for weeks. They were found outside of an area that had been uncovered by a sandstorm about a month and a half before. And outside of it, two of the members were found, one dead and soulless, the other insane and incurable. And he he kept muttering to himself, only 10 feet, only got 10 feet. Well, he went to this place and you walk into this chamber and it is only 10 feet by 10 feet. There's a door at the other side. You open the door, darkness, point of light that slowly grows. And when it's about postage stamp size, you start to see details as it rushes past you and you're in the room, you turn around There is no door out. The only way is forward. And there was no map. They found out, they figured out an ingenious way to map it out eventually, though. But yes, and there were actually exit points where you could get out. But then you had to go back to the beginning again to continue on. And I populated this with new creations of monsters, new artifacts, new magic items. And it was a blast. People really loved it.
3: I love the way that you just shoot right into the next room and you skip the whole point about like walking down the corridor and tapping the floor with the 10-foot pole <laughs> and listening at the door. All the stuff that you feel like you want to do to be safe, but it just slows the game down and you just skip right over that. I, I, I remember that from years and years ago, hearing that story and uh, it, it changed the way I approach uh, you know, narrative pacing.
0: But, see, I'm interestingly more interested in what you've said than apples or naked statues, I'll be honest with you. Just that's more grabby, your story.
3: (laughs) Are you sure that's the word you want to use? (laughs) Maybe not. (laughs) Phrasing. So, Hollis, I'm wondering if you have anything interesting to say in your years of experience as a black guy in the uh, gaming field. Maybe not, and then we can cut this part out of the podcast, but...
2: (laughs) Um, well, actually, when I first started out, there weren't a lot of minorities actually gaming. Yeah. Well, I grew up in the projects. So if it had been for a friend of mine turning me onto it, I don't know when I would have actually heard about it and gotten involved in it. Yeah. These days, it's, it's pretty much everywhere, but D&D is not a cultural thing. It has to do really more with a, t- uh, with a personality type, as it were. Okay. People who want to explore something else in a realm that they think is fun, exciting, something where they can do things that are outside their experience. Now you think that you would get more kids from the projects because of that, because you do get that vicarious traveling to other worlds and realms and magical beasts. Yeah. And. There's there, there are more, many more minorities, and male and female and transgender, everybody. There are many more players involved right now, but then that's also one of the reasons you have to have the codification, where you have to have the set books, the set modules, et cetera, because you want it there so everybody can participate, but you have to have the framework there for them to do so. Because as you said, these days, who's going to take the time to create a kingdom and a map and yeah. our, our, our attentions, our attention spans aren't that great anymore. Yeah.
3: Kids these days. <laughs>
2: yeah, <laughs> but that way. So yeah, it's, and it's, uh, in a way, it's a gateway drug to to wider experiences because you have to work with other people. You have to actually treat them as, as human beings. Not as just somebody that you're going to get something from because you need that something, but you have to respect them, work with them, and actually come to understand them. Mm-hmm. And I think that's great. And I think that's why it has grown so much, and so much more so in, in as far as interaction and then than Magic the Gathering. Yeah, because of the nature of the games, D and D, at least in my world, has always been a cooperative effort. And like I said, I love it when I come up with a scenario I don't think can be beaten, but they get their heads together, they come up with things I had not thought of, and together they accomplish this. And that sense of accomplishment, you you see people high-fiving each other around the table and cheering and drinking, and that, yeah. it's, you can't beat it, you really can't, man
1: see I thought I misheard you for a second there Paulus. when you said it was a gateway to wider experiences I thought you said it was a gateway to whiter experiences <laughs> and that's where we get the whole burning down the pubs thing again isn't it <laughs> well not for me
2: man but yeah <laughs> but yeah and, and I see that I see young people still getting that rush and finding that experience and together and Yes, I'm like you know, the old wizard in the corner nodding sagely and <laughs> right. to himself. But, <laughs> but I love it. I absolutely love it.
0: Cool. Well, that's, that sounds like a wonderful note to end it on. It's been about an hour, so I'm glad to have to let you guys go. Thanks very much, both uh, Jonathan and Hollis, for coming on. It'd be great to speak to you. Oh,
2: thank you for having me. Love it.
0: Real pleasure.
1: I'm glad our special guests brought their special guest. <laughs> <laughs>
0: it's all got a bit meta. Till next time dear listeners, thanks for dialing in. See yeah, everyone.